zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw. First shout out, of course, shout out to Mr. Jeezy. Uh, it's it's Neil again, hosted another booth episode. I got my guy Cody here. Cody, how we doing? We are back, Schuster. Feels like we just did this like last week. That's because we did, but we're, we're burning on a topic Damn. we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, talking shop a little bit, and we're going to bring in a special guest for that. I Hopefully, everybody can hear my air conditioner. It sounds like a <laughs> truly a Leviathan in my room here. It's hot in the big city. It's hot. And you know what I like wearing when I'm hot, Cody? What? Active wear. Roback active wear? Roback active wear. It's getting to be whoa, summer. Whoa. Getting to be summer. It's already summer. Roback is ready. Fresh off new releases for polos, hoodies, and Q-zips. Trust us when we say there isn't better gear for summer golf or really just summer activities. The fit, the feel, the quality, it's all dialed. First, their performance polos are next level with four-way stretch and moisture-wicking fabric. These polos are made to keep you comfortable in all conditions. Not only are they great for summer days on the course, but also some summer nights out on the town. I had a summer night out on the town last night before the strap premiere. Second, Roback's performance Q-zips are the only Q-zips we wear. The definition of versatile, these Q-zips are made to keep you warm for an early round of golf or while you're out and about. Trust us when we say we love these Q-zips. We do. Finally, Roback's performance hoodies are legitimately the most comfortable hoodies we own. They are hands down the softest, stretchiest hoodies in golf. Cody, I know you agree with that statement. 100%. Love it. You see us out on the course, odds are we're wearing a Roback hoodie. They're that good. They have new designs being released weekly. Use the code TRAP, that's T-R-A-P, at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off all polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code TRAP. Get ready for summer with Roback. Dealer, I barely escaped uh, Pebble Beach. We're out at the doghouse presented by Roback. I loved it wearing my, my hoodies and Q-zips all week long but it sounds like uh if people haven't watched episode three of strapped yet you got to go watch it sounds like benetti threw your ass in the booth man uh oh dude he's keeping me so off balance um which i normally keep other people off balance but that guy's operating on a you know different wavelength than i am there were eight nine jokes that i just had to all right i'm charging right through this one you know i'm gonna i'm watching that strike that's a strike i'm not gonna swing at that one but i know it's a strike it's, his volley of fire of one-liners just did not, like, let up at all. Yes, it's very true. Uh, but what a pro, man. That guy's uh, that's, that's great. And I would say that after going to spring training, I'm definitely watching a lot more. Not a lot more, but I'm watching more baseball. If I'm scrolling down the, you know, YouTube TV list, I see a baseball game on, I'll throw it on for a few innings. I'm not on Randy's level yet watching 100 Reds games a year. That's just a lot of baseball. So much. It's crazy. Um, but before we get any further, got to welcome our special guest into the booth, Mr. Kevin Van Volkenberg. How are you today? I'm feeling woke as ever. I'm ready to talk about my favorite <laughs> subject, woke, the woke media. Doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I know I kind of set this one in motion with some uh, some talk in our internal Slack uh, just about the future of media in general. But it feels like I get a lot of questions about What's going on with this stuff at the New York Times? What's going on with the layoffs at various places? You know, your guys' episode about 
Ukraine and was super insightful. And then Neil was able to really educate me on some stuff with like digital ad sales and how all that works with Google. And I thought, you know, why don't we talk about the media a little bit? Because uh, I feel like a lot of people have strong opinions about this stuff, but I don't know that they come necessarily from a super informed place. For sure. I mean, that's what we're doing here at the booth. We're trying to dive into the uh, to some topics that matter and let the uh, let those two other idiots handle the topics that don't, you know, monitor all, mm-hmm. all the things. Not to say that the monitoring list is, you know, there's some stuff that matters on there too. But It's mostly nonsense, yeah. I, you know what, KVV, I've been following this closely too. I want to shout out the, the Press Box podcast mm-hmm. brian curtis i know you've been on that pod i'm a regular listener of that i think he does a great job kind of breaking down the the industry media industry news of the week um so i think that's a, a good source if you're looking for more on this but i think what the catalyst for this conversation was the new york times decision to you know basically roll their their long-standing sports desk into the athletic and there's a lot of chatter, you know, on the interwebs about is that, oh, my God, the death of media. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Let's start there. What's your reaction to, you know, the gray lady uh, sending all this, the, you know, old sports writers over to the uh, to the athletic? Well, Neil, I would first of all clarify that it's that's not even exactly what is happening. What is happening is that they're taking all of their uh, sports desk, which are sort of a lot of very venerable reporters, people who have held these positions for many years, who've done exceptional work, and basically shoving them off to the rest of the paper and then saying, well, we bought The Athletic for $550 million, so why don't we just use these guys and replace them and have them be our sports desk now, which I personally, look, I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to say some things in the course of this conversation that might piss off a few of my friends in media, but I'm going to go ahead and say them because I think that speaking honestly about it is more important than sort of you know playing nice. This is a lot like a four-star restaurant basically saying, okay, well, we're still going to have this amazing menu, but we're also going to have this section of the menu that's a little bit less curated, a little bit less quality. I mean, I think that for the most part, if the athletic people were sort of speaking honestly, they would sort of say that their kind of journalism isn't reflective of what the New York Times has done in journalism for a long, long time. And my hope incredibly would be that the New York Times would slowly over time apply its same standards to the writers for the athletic uh whether it's in editing whether it's in story pitches uh and i think this comes with the caveat of saying that for a long time people within my industry have sort of joked that the times hates sports that it sort of covers them almost reluctantly and that they won't cover games they won't cover actual events that it's a lot of sort of esoteric sort of stuff but the quality of it is always exceptional uh and i think that the athletic is a different breed it's very much a nuts and bolts kind of stuff it's it's gamers it's minutiae it's stuff that essentially you really want but that hasn't been the new york times's brand for a long time and so there's a bit of me that is lamenting while acknowledging that it's sort of uh was haughty at times and and arrogant I don't know, would The Athletic run stories about, you know, concussions the way that the the Times has done some of that stuff? Would they, you know, John Branch has written all kinds of incredible stories, whether it's about mountain climbing in Afghanistan or about avalanches in Alaska or things like that. One of the best reporters really in the world in John Branch and storytellers, that's not the kind of stuff that The Athletic has done. And so... I guess I'm. We all should have seen this coming. That this was a moment where, as soon as the New York Times essentially bought up the Athletic, not so much for its sports coverage, but probably for its subscriber list of the Times is really wanting to 
evolve as a business and become this sort of massive thing that gives you a crossword puzzle and gives you Wordle and gives you cooking recipes and gives you podcasts and gives you narrative fiction and gives you now, you know, your nuts and bolts of sports reporting that they were going to sort of pivot from this. It's, I worry in some ways as the times is it trying to be so many things to different people that it's kind of going to lose its identity a little bit, whether you've, love or hate the times is an essential American institution. Nobody devotes as much resources, I think, to real world important porting, reporting as the times. And so it a little bit makes me sad that this is the direction that we're trending in because the athletic guys, they, the founders, they did, they did a lot of newspapers dirty. I mean, it, they did journalists fine because they kind of gave a lot of people who might not have had jobs for long term, like an extra boost in sort of the industry for a while, but they bled local newspapers pretty badly and said that that was their mission for a long time. They were going to basically rob uh, every beat writer that they could have and bleed out and wait out newspapers. And that's what they did. And now they're just kind of like basically like a newspaper again. So that it frustrates me that like these venture capital people basically you know, mask their true intentions. And we'll get into that later with, we talk about Alden Capital to basically just make a shit ton of money. Time is a flat circle. God, there's a lot there. I got to give a bang a lang. KVV came to KVV came to play. Let's take it one by one. So first off correction on, on my intro. So these, how many sports writers were on the sports desk at the New York times? I would guess probably 20 to 30. And so they basically just said like, you guys, you know, pick another part of the paper you want to work at or, I doubt they let him pick, okay. <laughs> but that they basically said, yeah, there's some people I think that might be reassigned to like the financial desk where they could focus on sports. Uh, but you know, from what I've seen, like some of them are going to go, you know, right for the obits desk and yeah. right for, you know, the lifestyle section. And uh, you know, a lot of them don't know. Uh, and what the, what we didn't really talk about this is a, another, I think the main driver, and this is what the Times sports section is going to push back if they can is that this is really just a union busting move. This is a way to sort of the you know the athletic people are not unionized. The New York Times Guild Times Guild is a really, you know, important organized labor within the world of journalism and this is a chance for the Times essentially to say, well, we can just eliminate 30 40 positions within our newsroom that are guild protected and bring in these other people who were paying probably most of them less and you know, just sort of roll with it that way. So do you feel like the New York Times sports, like I understand the symbolic action and I agree with you on the union busting thing. And then we'll get on, we'll get into the athletic stuff. Cause I think there's pros and cons over there, but do you like, if the New York Times sports desk was still around right now, and I asked you, do, do you think they do good work? What would your answer be? Absolutely. Okay. I do think they do work. I think that it is geared towards an audience that doesn't sort of see sports as a sort of, I guess, obsessive way that a lot of sports fans follow it. It's for, you know, the, the kind of college educated or the, you know, it, it sounds really arrogant to sort of put it this way, but that's the way that they have kind of pitched it for many years. It's like the, you know, the thinking man's sort of sporting approach, uh, you know, the special the interest the, features, features around the vertical of sports. Sure. Yeah. But also like they do a lot of really important like work when it comes to issues that would, you know, that organizations within, I, I guess, like the NFL would love to stay buried and the MLB would love for it to stay buried. And I think the most important reporting that can be done is stuff that organizations, powerful organizations don't want out there. 
And that's what the Times has always been willing to do, is basically say, we will dedicate resources, we will be fearless in that sense of reporting into stuff. And they they led the charge in a lot of the concussion stuff. I mean, the years, you know, 20 years ago, they were one of the first people that was sort of exposing that the NFL was lying to its own players about the dangers of head injury stuff. And I don't know that, you know, a future like that exists. I hope so, uh, because there are good journalists at The Athletic, but they don't have the same reputation built up over time for doing that kind of deep dive investigative stuff. Well, if we zoom out, I see some similarities with what's happened at the New York Times this week and the layoffs at ESPN last week or two weeks ago. And the ESPN, like, if you zoom out from a solace standpoint, I can see what they're doing with the McAfee signing. And I mean, they have their, like, they're basically creating personality pillars. Stephen A, McAfee, Mike Greenberg, like these guys are just inning eaters. It's like, I'm going to be on first take, do three hours of radio, you know, with McAfee, it's I'm going to be on YouTube all day and then I'll be on, I'll do a hit on PTI and then I'll do a pregame show and a postgame show. Like those guys just, they can, you know, and to their credit, like Stephen A is entertaining. He's good at his job, sure. right? But mm-hmm. at the expense of like in-depth reporting or like, you know, I like Van Gundy. Like I think he's a good basketball analyst. Well, a guy like that's not, you know, moving the needle on on first take. And then on the on the athletic side, what I see is like, as a former subscriber to the athletic, it was great for local, your team's like local beat writer. You know, like I got a bunch of friends that are Cincinnati Bengals and Reds fans. They love the athletic writer. Like, Oh my God, the guy, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a killer in the Cincy area. And it feels like they're kind of hollowing out that coverage a little they, bit they now are, that they've been bought sure. by New York times, which is, that's, what's a bummer to me is like, that was the point of the athletic and they're going more the Shams route, you know, the, the NBA insider who's also working with, you know, he's like works with stadium and the athletic, I guess his visual rights are with stadium, but we don't even need to get into the RSN stuff. That's stadium. He's less a reporter than he is a pass through for agents to sort of like trade, you know, information. Like there's not a lot, there's nothing that he respectfully is getting out there that no, that an agent doesn't want to be out there. Like it's all something that, you know, is built off of a relationship that someone's like, Hey, all right, now you can tweet this and now you can write this. And my, but here's where my, here's where I struggle is like, I can't, I hate that. That's what ESPN is doing. Let's take the ESPN example specifically. I hate that. That's what they're doing, but I understand why Pataro is doing that because that's kind of what like is moving the needle for sponsors. Like I think sponsors are coming to ESPN and saying like, I don't want to sponsor the NBA halftime show i want to sponsor Stephen a smith you know like i want the personality like they're trying to build shows around the personality like similar to how like it's kind of how nlu works right like personality driven so they're trying to like flip it like to to what a lot of these person like what mcafee did they're like cool that's that people want to sponsor that guy they don't want to sponsor the like the show that he's on if that makes sense so what i would say about espn is that part of that comp that sort of conversation is complicated in that Yes, like Pat McAfee costs a ton of money and so does Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. Like they had to sort of fix those parts of the division and pay a lot of money to that. What is also true is that Disney is basically saying, you know what, like you've always been super duper profitable for us and now you're like a little bit less profitable, but you're still like billions of dollars per quarter you're bringing in for us. And what we need is for our stock price to continue to sort of, you know, get a bump and for wall street to essentially say like you know we're feel good about where disney is headed we can trim four percent of our workforce and 
we can take, we, we feel like the brand has always been more important than the individual. So everybody needs to take a little bit of a haircut in their division, whether it's parks, whether it's, you know, movies stuff, whether it's ESPN, whether it's cruises or whatever. And so ESPN is seeing part of that. But what I would say, Neil, is that I, I agree very much with the premise of like the personality driven stuff is important to the mission. What I would also say, and what I don't think a lot of people think about is what the fuck do some of these personalities talk about if there's no reporting being done? That's well said. I, I, That's what ESPN has always gotten right, which is that like the Seth Van, Seth, you know, Seth Wickersham's, the Don Van Natas, the Mina Kimes, the Wright Thompson's, the Liz Merrill's that, you know, people did the reporting that essentially drove the conversation. And that was true also of like, you know, some of their NFL nation people that would, you know, do actual reporting instead of just kind of the stenography stuff, you know, like Baxter Holmes and Ramona Shelburne done amazing stuff on the NBA. All of that is what essentially sets the agenda for what's being talked about on the air. And that's where I think if the danger is, is if you, and, I, and to look, to be honest, ESPN didn't trim a lot of its like investigative reporting stuff. What they did was kind of, you know, lose some on-air talent uh, and focus on the larger names of it and lose some in sports center second wave, yeah, right? In the second wave, yes. But they did, you know, they lost editors and they lost people, you know, I, I mean, I, I still can't understand why June Lee was like one of their baseball writers was, you know, young and and did a lot of great innovative stuff left. So that's what's frustrating to me is like eventually – like I'm sure Pat McAfee feels like he could just talk about whatever, but I think it's people don't really grasp how much of these quotes that everybody kind of like, you know, that will drive an entire day of conversation on ESPN. That's because some beat writer like went up to a player in a locker room and basically said like, hey, I need to talk about this or, or confronted a coach about it. If we're just going to sort of regress to, I think a lot of sometimes fans like, I'll just watch the press conference on the, you know, the post game, like I don't need the media's report. Who do you think is asking those questions in the post game? Who do you think is interviewing the person in the locker room who's saying, I'm frustrated, I want to trade, or I don't feel like I'm not getting enough touches, or I feel like I might go golf for, for the, you know, live. All of that is driven by people who are on the ground reporting. And I always try to sort of emphasize that when we're talking about stuff. I don't, I, I really resist like whenever like we take shots at the golf media because for a lot of like we couldn't do our jobs if it wasn't for a lot of the beat writers day in, day out who were basically out there having to ask, you know, like, hey, are you interested in going to live? Like we don't have the budget to basically send someone to every single golf tournament. And so somebody's got to be there asking those questions. That's an important part of of how journalism functions. I wouldn't say we take shots at the golf media. Usually those shots are coming back, coming at us first. Oh, for sure. I'm saying I, I would, I don't think we do. I'm saying I don't yeah. want us to. We don't, yeah. we don't have a, a, a Dr. J out there asking questions <laughs> week by week by week. But okay. So what, how you frame this is that there, you, we've talked a lot about like national sports reporting here and really worldwide sports reporting. And you, you've identified that a lot of these local uh, beat writers or sections from large companies like the Atlantic, uh, even ESPN, yeah, the, the Athletic, excuse me, are going away. So is there somebody, are, are there news organizations that are filling those gaps? Because I look at it from like a local newspaper and I understand like I don't want to transition this yet to like how local newspapers really aren't that much local anymore and they're basically owned by the same like four or five different people, whether that's like VC firms or whatnot, and they're curated on what they're going to report on. But like, mm -hmm. 
is is the local sports reporting still there today? No. Okay. I, I think that we are seeing a massive news desert in so many communities. I mean, you know, Cody, there must have been some sort of person who covered Shelby when you were growing up. Like whether, you know, you you shot 74 or whatever at uh, Metal Arc Country Club. Did somebody type that into the agate and put it in there and your grandma pulled it out and highlighted it or whatever? Like Neil, like Absolutely. somebody in Atlanta must have like, that's not happening anymore across America. Now, there's some like websites that cover prep stuff or whatever, but, you know, I was thinking about this. Sully and I are doing this pod later this week. You know, we, one of the ones where we look back historically, the masters and I have a subscription to newspapers.com stuff. And so we're going back and I'm reading like Tiger Woods quotes from, you know, when he was 19 years old and they're fascinating. It's like a great historical record of like what he was thinking at that time and place that's going to disappear because we don't have anybody sort of archiving any of this stuff. We're not going to, it's all just kind of kind of vanish into the ether, whether it's like, you know, imagine if the next LeBron James came along now and it was like, oh, he's being covered only on TikTok or, you know, it, we're, there's going to be a lot of tweets about him or whatever. Where does that get saved? You know, that he approves or his agent approves or uh -huh. his manager approves and everything's thoroughly 100%. vetted and skimmed down to what he wants 100%. the world to see. Part of what's eroding like people's trust in media in general, and this is it starts small and gets larger, is that media has there's their local newspapers not covering the shit that matters to you anymore it's a sort of you know it's a slapdash put together thing of of ads and ap stories and maybe one or two staff written stories that someone's making you know thirty eight thousand dollars a year and they're overworked as shit and they're trying to cover schools and local government and police and you know and the local high school stuff and they're just completely doing it almost like out of a sense of duty to your community while some venture capital fuck is laughing his face off and being like, I'm going to bleed this shit dry because who gives a fuck about this community? That's what enrages me is that like you can have like, I think mostly misinformed opinions about the media, but it's ruining this kind of communities where corruption is sort of running rampant because there's nobody and we're not, we're sort of largely talking about things beyond sports, but it, it works with sports too. Where like coaches are get accused of like, molesting kids or doing stuff and that coach just gets moved along to the next thing and there's nobody in the next community who's reporting on that because there's newspaper there folded up five years ago or they're a weekly and they don't have possibly can't run background checks on this guy and like if you rely on the people who like the governmental people to give you the news straight up you are going to be fail every time and i that is true what regardless of what your politics are now, I live in Baltimore. It's one of the most democratic cities in the country. And my God, the corruption here in mean, this local government is rampant. And so like the idea that like this is a, a liberal conservative thing that where people sort of laugh sometimes at the demise of the media. And you're only sort of spiting the same people that you're sort of looking to say that you know protect this, this populist idea that like, you know, it's the, the people matter and the elites don't. It's the elites who are fucking over the, like, the people by say, basically saying your communities don't matter to me and I, they don't deserve any kind of coverage. Well, I think a massive issue, there's a lot there to unpack, but it kind of, to me, it comes back to this, the whole lo like, local news thing, it comes back to consolidation of like, you know, you got, uh, what's it, Sinclair? You got these big companies behind the scenes kind of, scooping up the local news they're able to pump stuff from the mothership and then fill in the gaps with like what you're saying like a few slapdash things and the, and i think what it gets back to though is like 
Well, two things. One, media is a, it's a it's not a great business. Like we're we're running a media company, and like like the athletic was very disappointing to me because they were selling it as like, oh, we're gonna we're investing in the local markets, and really what they were doing is like a race against the clock of like how quick can we make this how how quickly can we juice this so it's attractive for somebody bigger to buy us instead of doing the hard work and like scaling out you know, one by one by, you know, and, and actually doing the work. But the problem is the work is hard. And then the second piece of that though, is it's a little bit of like, we all got to look in the mirror. It's like people are trained. They don't think they have to pay for it anymore. And that's devastating for the media business. It's like, no, I get my information from for free, right? Like I'll just go to Google news and you, you know, you just take the first result. And so it's, it, it that breeds a, like the business model is broken and like, it is. yes, the business model is the problem, but it's also like we're all kind of the problem because we refuse to pay for, you know, good work, basically. So that so you got to get what you pay for. 100%. I mean, like Google and Facebook hoovered up all of the sort of digital ad money and basically figured out a way to not have to share that. And they're, the newspapers are sort of like pie in the sky, Hail Mary, is that somehow like, you know, the various like, Justice departments will basically decide that they have to sort of share some of that somehow that they've been kind of violating copyright law by, you know, taking what the hard work of the those media entities doing and then, you know, getting the ad money from it by sort of using, you know, Google search stuff. You you understand that a lot better than I do. But well, they share them. They, they still get paid for it. It's just like instead of it's almost like a, a shower head that's like clogged. It's like the shower head used to be like manhole cover up, you know, when it was like buying direct at the newspaper it's like all the money's coming to the paper and now it's like yeah we got the little holes are clogged we you know like google's put a little cap on that and they're keeping it all up there i mean i'll say look the media is blame to blame for a lot of its own demise uh because you know back when things were transitioning away from you know print media people learn to figure out like, all right, like, I guess I won't steal music. I guess I'll pay for iTunes. All right. I guess I won't like illegally pirate, you know, movies. I'll pay for Netflix. I'll pay to have shit delivered to my house as part of Amazon. But the media thought, you know, the media and, and using the media as sort of such a, a silly term, right? Cause there's no collective like monolith where the media makes decisions. It's like a lot of people made a lot of dumb decisions or they made a lot of selfish decisions because they knew they weren't going to be around for the fallout. Uh, and so a lot of executives at places where I worked, you know, the Sam Zell, this uh, real estate guy who bought the Tribune company, the Tribune company before it was sold to Sam Zell was basically like, you could tell that those executives who approved the sale were like, Ah, we don't care. Like this guy is probably going to gut this, but we're going to get our bonuses and we're going to peace out. And for, you know, for many, many years, decades, century, when families owned newspapers, some of them, you know, did it for part of the social prestige, but some of them did it for like the greater good of like society. Like, Hey, this is an important sort of public trust. And we feel like, I mean, the, the Schulzbergers who own the New York times, like that was kind of always part of their thing. Like, Hey, look, this is an important part of civil society to have a functioning democracy to have a newspaper that questions authority that does things like run the pentagon papers under the threat of imprisonment that you know uncovers corruption in the catholic church all this stuff that has sort of pivoted to what exactly what you're talking about so people are, are less willing to pay for it because they're like well it's always been free to me and then the most kind of depressing part is you have these venture capital firms who are coming in are like all right 
how fast can I bleed this newspaper to death? Cutting 2% every single year. Quick comfort, like it's not venture capital guys, it's private equity. Private it, equity. Well, and there's a That's difference right. there. And it's, I think, an important one. Those are, you know, it is those are the guys right. who are going to come in and like, we're going to freaking take away coffee in the break room and make yes. this thing as efficient as fuck. That's a that's a great point. Thank you for clarifying. They, I think uh, that's just a brain fart on my part. But so private equity guys, Alden Capital is one of these main sort of you know it's, it's two dudes. Uh, they're basically like I think the best analogy that I heard is like they're coming in and they're basically like holding someone's head underwater and like drowning them to death and like kind of like almost like enjoying the kind of death march to it. I mean, they own like 200 newspapers across the country and none of it is an attempt to sort of like make media better or innovate it. They don't even really like respond to any of the, you know, the people in management's requests about like, what do you guys want? Other than just like to say, we want to cut the workforce two or 3%. They're trying to basically kill newspapers and bleed whatever they can out of them. And look, none of this shit is illegal, but it's like a miserable development in capitalism that basically you're robbing communities of information just to sort of like suck as much as you profit as you can. You're basically saying to these people, Hey, we know you're not like dumb enough to cancel your subscription tomorrow. And you're probably going to just keep paying out of like, you know, my, my in-laws still pay for the Baltimore sun, even though it's totally garbage in a lot of what it does. It's, it's, you know, five sheets of paper when it used to be 200 every day. And they're sort of paying for it out of like obligation of institution. And so that money is just like going into, you know, those private equity firms, pockets where they're then flipping it to buy real estate and you have whatever other kind of awful ventures that they're so so these alden guys basically they've scooped up like 200 daily papers around the around the u.s Mm -hmm. and then they they you know rip rip it to the studs basically like let's run it really really lean and do and then they hang on to it or do they sell it to somebody else like what's the what's the end game there I mean, they just kind of let it either go into bankruptcy or they just basically will run it down to the studs of like, there's one reporter covering, you know, five beats, whether it's in Allentown where you just went, you know, to play off. Like I guarantee if if you picked up a local paper there, it might be two staffers there who are trying desperately to like cover city council, cover zoning boards, cover like, you know, stuff where the, the mayor is like hiring his brother or, you know, hiring his cousin to do a no bid contract on such and such thing. Like, all that shit happens all over the country. And when there isn't media watching, it's not like someone is like, I see sometimes people are like, I'll just read Facebook to get my local community stuff. You think somebody on Facebook is like uncovering the public records <sighs> to like figure out who's getting illegal tax breaks? Hell like that yeah, is, they are. That is Come not on, happening. Man. Do you your know, own this, research, KBB. <laughs> exactly. So that's just, that's what's heartbreaking is that, you know, we've kind of as a society basically said like, eh, whatever. Like, I don't really need this information and yet are angry all the time that like we have these corrupt politicians or we have, you know, that we've lost faith in institutions because, you know, money people have been able to kind of run rampant without any sort of public pressure whatsoever. This is also like a vicious cycle though. Cause you talk about angry, angry politicians and everything else like that, but a lot of these organizations, and I understand we're talking a lot about print here, but I'll take it back and talk a little bit of di- digital and television is that, this 24-hour news cycle makes it so people have to talk about something. So a lot of it is not even like vetted information or, or legitimate quotes from, you know, pressers or anything else like that. It, it could be, it literally is anything that not even, it doesn't even have to come from the, the person. It's the undisclosed sources that said this or that or whatever. And like, 
you can literally have like an entire day's worth of news dedicated to that that could be completely false. Correct. Or irrelevant. It's like yeah. the, the the tan suit thing, right? The that Obama wears a tan suit and it drives the news cycle for two days. Like how irrelevant could that possibly be, whether no matter what your politics are? And I there's a part of me that worries that ESPN will trend in that direction in the sense of like, well, the talking is all that matters because the talking is what pays the bills. It's efficient. Yeah. But the talking doesn't have any substance to it. What is it really even worth? Like, how many times can you be like, who's better, Jordan or LeBron? Like, that's not a really, that's an unanswerable question that people want to have in barbershops and they want to have in bars and they want to have, you know, amongst their friends, but it isn't really that interesting 10,000 times over. And that subject will be repeated in, you know, when LeBron retires, we'll have a whole nother round. Well, there's an interesting thing with ESPN though, of like there, it seems like they've pushed their chips in on like, digital like rights you know uh broadcast rights and then they need the talking heads to surround those broadcast rights which you know you can look at that and be like i get that as a business strategy like i do it's like it's more efficient for me to pay Stephen a 10 million a year than it is to you know have a you know a bunch of like reporting bloat i agree with you that shallows out like what you're gonna like you know what you're gonna hear and and quality of the content but uh i mean that's just it, it's tough man I, I on the good side so so coming out the bottom of this right people been laid off at, at these places we've talked about and over the past five years you kind of keep an eye there's some there's substack people okay let me start my own substack right like i root for that i'm like hey man i hope substack does well that's that's uh that's great like i'm gonna start my own email newsletter i subscribe to a bunch of them um, and then I was, you know, I was really rooting for like a company like Axios. I thought they were doing good work. They got scooped up last year by Cox media company based out of Atlanta. Now TBD, like maybe not all of the, you know, private equity money is bad because I think Cox is their plan was to help Axios. Like five, they are a cable company in a lot of second tier markets along with owning like auto trader. And it's an interesting private business based in Atlanta. I think what they want to do with Axios is help them set up more local, almost satellites and, and do local news in those second tier markets, which then feeds their cable company. You know, it's almost like the AT&T play of like, oh, we own the pipes, but we need the content to go with it to like almost sell on top of it. So maybe that's a more sustainable way to look at it. I don't know. I'm just trying to look at like, where does it go from here? It's right. You you get, you got all these people that are, you know, getting laid off. I, I think, part of it is like an expectation of like, and this sucks to say out loud. It's like, you're, you're not like media is not a business. And I can kind of speak to this personally. If you want to, you know, it's not, you're not going to get rich. Like if you want to do it right, it's not like a going to be a massive wealth generator, unless you just want to consolidate a bunch of stuff and do bad work, which I don't really have an interest in doing, but if you want to do it slow and steady and let it compound, it can be a very stable and solid and, fulfilling but i think in our kind of culture it's like you know grow if you're not growing you're dying that doesn't really work well (laughs) as like oh it's not a you know it's not really a growth industry and when it gets sold as one i think that's when you run into problems well i think like there's smaller versions of that sort of make you somewhat hopeful right you talked about the substack model but like what defector did like the people who used to be deadspin sort of when they broke away and they're basically like we're going to be you know, employee owned, and we're going to have a subscription based 
business where people can pay $8 a month or $70 a year or whatever. And they've managed to sort of make it work. And, you know, we use the bar analogy when we were talking about this, Neil, like they don't want to like franchise themselves and become like a chain of Applebee's. What they want to do is like own one local bar that people really value and that they're like, Hey, you know, I, I go here and I know what I'm getting. And it's an important part of like my taste and my thing. And I think that's an admirable model. Like I, I don't really want to work at a place that wants to be Applebee's. Like I want to work at a place that has a connection to its readership. And that's, you know, part of what I was feeling in the end of ESPN is like, you know, you can do really good work and you can, you know, feel like it was worthwhile. And even that your place gives you, gives it a good platform. But like, if you're like a reporter, not a lot of people like I have any connection or any, they don't even really read who your byline is. They're just like, man, look at these quotes from Aaron Rodgers talking about how the woke media is keeping, you know, the, the COVID vaccine uh, secrets, you know, down. Like that's, you know, at least with like what I sort of feel like I'm doing now with NLU, people have like, they're either invested in me, whether they like me or hate me or whatever, they, they have some connection to me and they're going to read my stuff if they care about it. And if they don't, they're welcome to pass on it. But for the most part, like they seem to read it and connect and feel something for it. And that emotional connection is kind of an important part of like the investment that we want to have in media going forward. It's like, all right, you know, reporters used to be the people who live in your community. Like they sent the kids to your school, you know, that they worked on the same, you know, bake sales that you did or coach soccer team, youth soccer teams with you. And, and so there wasn't like this hatred towards the media of like they're out to fuck us. It was like, all right, this person's like doing their best to sort of help provide, you know, what's, what's going on. I may not love them or may not, you know, think that everything they do is right, but I feel like they're serving an important function. And what's been, that's been eroded in 20 years, basically because of a sort of a campaign of like, as long as you can blame the media, it's going to sort of ring a bell for somebody's, you know, who can blame them instead of their problems. Yeah. I mean, well, no, it's what the, what's interesting about it is the, the media, it's almost this perfect encapsulation of like just the death of the local economy in general. Yeah. And well, think it's Amazon at writ large in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. The, it's your local handy store doesn't exist, you know. Your handyman doesn't really exist anymore because like so many people could rather just p- click up Amazon on their phone and be like, oh, please deliver me a box of nails. I mean, I, what part of what I sort of lament about stuff is like we're still in the midst of this transition. We're probably in phase four of this transition. But, you know, what is the like the next generation of sports media people or you know certainly people who cover, you know, more important things than sports, whether it's healthcare or schools or communities or poverty or things like that, they're slowly being sort of like steered in other directions because there's just no money for them to make a living doing this anymore. And so when I see golf writers in, you know, the press boxes around their media centers, media tents around the country, and they're kind of like, Oh, can I ask you about this for career advice? I sort of am drawing a blank a little bit about like what to even tell them because I don't know that the model exists for them. Like the, the model that I came up with came up through that doesn't exist anymore. Like, and so the advice that I have for them is basically like irrelevant to their lives. So and what I, would that I, traditional model be? So I got a job. I was one of the lucky ones. I got a job at a big newspaper right out of college and I worked there for 11 years. Uh, and then I guess 12 years to 12, 11 and a half years. And then I worked for, I, I got lucky again and I worked for a national publication 
after that. So I basically had like a two-step model, whereas most people have three or four where they work for, you know, a, a small newspaper. If they're lucky, they get to be at a mid-sized newspaper, then a bigger newspaper. Then, you know, maybe they get discovered to, and they ultimately end up, you know, being a columnist at a big newspaper or they're getting a national job, whether it's for a magazine or as a feature writer uh, for like an ESPN or something. And now like, you know, Sports Illustrated doesn't even send people to events anymore. They're not even going to send anybody to the Open Championship. Uh, well, I mean, they'll send Bob Eric, but they're not even going to send like a columnist or a feature writer or someone for their magazine to write their sort of thing. Like they're they're slowly like ticking away like all of the things that like, I mean, when Sally and I do this research for all this pod stuff, so much of what we read is like SI gamers from that era. And those just don't really happen anymore. And that's part of the reason why like we've tried to do some of this stuff from majors where I write like these bigger pieces that drop Monday morning and sort of have, you know, hopefully a little bit of like scene and perspective. It's like someone needs to kind of be like marking the historical record of like what happened here and giving you something that you can't see on TV. And I don't know that that, I don't know that model is maybe it's, it's dated, but there's still like an appetite for it out there. That's still those things that end up being some of the most read things that we write from those events. And I wish that, people would grasp that just because that shit is hard, like doesn't mean that there isn't people, there's an appetite for it. People want. Yeah. And it's not necessarily like sexy either, especially in this day and right. age when everything is like digital. If you want to be a writer, like you have to be a podcaster, you have to be a, a video totally. guy. You have to, you know, have this, this clout and everything that kind of comes with it. I don't know very many people who are just like, I write for whatever. And that's it. Well, the thing is, there's a couple differences there though. Back like in the 95, Let's take that example for that topic pod you're doing. You know, that's a very different media landscape where if you miss the tournament, there it, it wasn't like you could watch the highlights on YouTube. It, you, maybe you catch it on SportsCenter once, but then next day, like you're never seeing that footage again. Whereas now you can kind of like the historical, you, somebody could argue that the historical record is being saved by like, you can go to YouTube and watch the highlights from, you know, 15 different accounts probably. Or, you know, you could go on Twitter. Unless, you, you unless find, it's the PJ Championship. Now, does that put it in con? Does that put it in context? No, it doesn't. And and is that good for? I guess it allows people to go and put it in their own context. 10, 15, 20 years from now, you know, you could argue that's not exactly what somebody's looking for. What I, I guess where I come out on this and what I've been thinking about a lot is the music business went through something similar or is going through something similar, and the you know records and then CDs like being a music label was big business things were great. And then all of a sudden the big homie Sean or the little homie Sean Parker comes along. Napster just nukes it all, right? CD sales fall off a cliff. They don't know what they're going to do. And, and, but the last like five, six years, though, it's kind of been bad for the musical artist. The music industry is back, right? Like streaming rights and, uh, or, you know, streaming and, um, iTunes, I guess iTunes kicked it off and then streaming has made it a viable, like the industry a viable growing business opportunity again now is not that, for the artists has, not for the artists not well it depends on what kind of artist it's kind of complicated it depends if you own your rights or not and all that stuff like that you know we get into that the specifics of it but i mean as an industry it is growing again and i'm guessing what i'm saying is like is there a way is that going to happen again for you know like for print journalism or for you know for other parts of media Right. That's kind of what I was getting at with the Substack thing. You're like, oh, maybe there's something here. But then it's like, man, that's kind of a, that's a grind. And 
it's hard to it's hard to break out, you know. But I guess that's that's part of it, right? Like you got to do the work if you want to be successful. It's just not going to be like go jump on at this big organization and like you know you got the ticket now. So the, that's interesting that you bring up the music industry because that's kind of what I tell kids who are like in college right now when they're like, you know, should I still go into journalism? And I'm like, you know what? You need to look at this like I'm a struggling like musician. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get discovered. I'm going to freaking play in the shittiest little clubs. I'm going to write my ass off. I'm going to write stuff that never sees the light of day. I'm going to grind, grind, grind. I'm going to live, you know, on people's couches. And if that's what you want, then go for it. But if you want to do this and like have a family and like have a normal life, then this might not be it for you. And that's what the exchange, the music industry has always sort of said. It's like, all right, you know what? You don't want to do this. I got... 50 other women who are walking down music row in Nashville who can sing the shit out of this note and would love to take your place and give this shot and try to be the next Taylor Swift. So I think that that's what's complicated about the way this all is. Is like it used to be a way to make a decent living and not be famous, but sort of be an important part of you know, function. And now it's more like the music industry where it's like, all right, we're going to pluck a few successes out of here and it's going to work out really well for them. But it's, it's really like about how bad do you want it? And I, and also do you get a few lucky breaks along the way? And that's, that's a hard thing to tell kids, especially when they're coming out of journalism school and they're looking at, you know, 70, $80,000 in debt because some school is telling them like, oh, you know, go to Northwestern, like you got to pay $50,000 a semester or whatever. And so that's it'll get you a great journalism degree, and what that means coming out of school is, I don't, who knows? Yeah. Well, to make sure we stay in business, we got to thank one more of our partners, Cody. Who is that? That is Whoop Neil. God, I'd love to see KVV's Whoop score after. Getting I got to get a Whoop. Booth. I didn't come with my NLU uh, entry package, so. Ah, uh, uh, well, you know, well, let, Cody, tell him how you can get a Whoop. <laughs> yeah. That's right. This episode is brought to you by Whoop, the official fitness wearable of the PGA Tour. If you don't know by now, Whoop is a sleek, screenless wearable that tracks your sleep, strain, recovery, stress, and more to provide personalized insights that help you reach your goals, Kevin. So whether you're obsessed with squeezing out a little more effort in the gym, shoot your lowest score this summer, or get those extra hours of sleep each week. Whoop helps you build better habits and make healthier choices. I agree. I, I rock my Whoop all the time. Should have seen my Whoop scores last week marching around Pebble. KVV, uh, we should have slapped one of those on Keegs and see what her numbers should have been like. That's we should have. You know, when I did the, uh, I did a Whoop for uh, a year and uh, enjoyed it very much. And uh, the, the heart rate variability thing, I got obsessed with that. Like, you know, every day waking up, like what my... And I, I taught my wife about it, and now she can't like stop looking at hers. And it it it's a little bit like a, I don't know. It, it, and she's obsessed about it. She like wants to make the, all right. I got to get to sleep so I can get my a good yep. uh, HRV recovery score thing. I know. I can't wait to to track Solly's uh, his recovery numbies once his baby comes for him. But <laughs> with features like strength trainer, stress monitor, you can finally track the intensity of your weightlifting. Or manage your stress levels with real-time stress score and science-backed breathe work. Try Whoop for one month free and get ready to unlock the best version of yourself. Head to Whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com to get started and use code NLU to save 10% off your order. Thanks to Whoop. All right, KVV, where do you want to go next? 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we had some some questions from uh, the people out there that I thought were um, sort of interesting. Uh, I don't know if you I'll, guys want to. Yeah, I'll fire one of these up of for you. I, I asked the the, uh, the kids out there to throw some media questions out here. We'll hold a little media hour with uh, KBV and uh, see what I can provide. Kevin, you talked about it a little bit. Your your extensive time spent with the worldwide leader. Mm-hmm. Question here is, how do you propose that we do digital journalism at scale sustainably? I mean, is this possible? I think it is. I think that, you know, a place, one thing that's important to remember about ESPN is like, every time you see these like people who are like, oh, ESPN went woke and so it went broke. Like those people could not be more clueless about the finances of ESPN. Like ESPN brings in billions of dollars in revenue and a lot of profit. Uh, I, you know, it's something like, I think I'm gonna get this wrong, but it's something like $4 billion a quarter in, you know, revenue. So like the idea that like ESPN is hurting for money is silly. I think we need to detach some of it from like the idea that like, oh, your stock price always has to sort of go up. So whether it's like private businesses that are not, you know, basically having to answer to the whims of like the quarterly earnings report. I think that that's still something that's very much manageable and it has a chance to be profitable. I think that you've shown that people will pay for stuff. Like how many people pay to subscribe to the Nest? Like it's a lot. And, you know, it might not be enough to like fund all of our salaries, but it's enough to fund a lot. And so if you put out stuff that people mat that matters to people, they will like fork over their wallet for them. You just have to continue to kind of prove to them that you're in it uh, and you're serving them. And it's a like the best kind of way to spend that eight bucks. I mean, I, you know, it's not like Netflix is similar. To it's like that you pay $14 a month for Netflix or whatever. There's a lot of people that do that or a lot of people that pay for Amazon Prime. And it's not that those places are like losing money. It's that they're not growing as fast as they once did. And so that's where you, we have to sort of figure out a way to be like, all right, the growth aspect of it, we need to detach that from the actual product. Yes. It, it Not everything can be like a, a, a growth engine. I agree with that. The problem for ESPN, though, is that they, yes, they're still bringing in a ton of money, but the, uh, the trend looks bad as cable. It's the cable stuff, right? So they, they have these crazy carriage fees with the cable companies, and, and they, they kind of have to kill the golden goose and reinvent themselves. And, it, and it's like almost like, when are we going to like, they're trying to do it like slowly to move towards like streaming ESPN plus stuff. But it's kind of like every time they do that, it gets, you know, they, they, it's very, um, the innovators dilemma where they have to disrupt themselves and that's going to make it look really, really bad for like five years. And so it's like, do you rip the bandaid off like slowly? And what they're doing, it seems like is ripping it off slowly or do you just, rip it off really fast. And so eventually I think within the next year or two, you'll be able to get like a standalone ESPN subscription that's not tied to your cable. Like right now you can get ESPN plus, but that doesn't offer like the same kinds of things. Uh, they're trending towards that. And I think that it'll, it'll, they'll try to do exactly what you're saying, which is sort of slide the model over because a lot of people still want to have cable. They don't want to, you know, like your parents don't want to like log in or maybe not your parents, but like Certainly your parents' parents, if they were still alive, wouldn't want to like log into a laptop and stream that through their television to sort of say like, oh, I have, you know, ESPN now. I can watch the Super Bowl, which is eventually going to be on ESPN. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that a digital sort of model of it will work in the long run because live sports are still one of the few things that people want to watch and experience collectively. 
like we've seen with golf, nobody wants to watch golf on tape delay. You know, even if it's like the Scottish Open where you don't really have a choice to it, it's like that eh, doesn't really, you know, matter to me. They would, they would rather watch live LPGA than they'd watch, you know, tape delay PGA in a lot of ways. And so I hope that that's sort of true. Certainly it's true of football. Like nobody, football is the big behemoth and ESPN is sort of doubling down of like, all right, what, how much football rights can we get or how much NBA rights can we get? Because that's sort of a global sport. Uh, and, you know, that's a little bit of their investment in golf too. So it's, it's a hard, it's an impossible thing to figure out, I think in the moment, but I think for the most part that I would say, I do believe the execs who are trending in it are going in the right way. They're going the right way about it. Hmm. How does all this stuff work? I mean, you, you touched on it earlier about sports illustrated, not sending a reporter over for the open championship, but like how, like, like I'm an idiot, explain to me, I guess, the financial investment that goes into like sending ESPN Kevin to the masters to cover that for the week. And like, what are like ballpark? Like, is there a return on that investment? Like how does this whole big media ecosystem actually work? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we're going to talk about like actual ballpark numbers. Um, You know, it's for my whole time at the, at ESPN, we would send, you know, three, four people, writers, editors, whatever, to the masters every year. So that's, you know, you're spending $20,000 in housing and, you know, seven, $8,000 in plane tickets for those people. You're spending, you know, money on food, whatever. And what you're getting back is like, they're going to sort of lead drive the website every day while also you're broadcasting the first two rounds of it on your thing. So those things are kind of working, you know, dovetailing together. You're giving, you know, Scott Van Pelt, something to kind of talk about on the air of like, check out this story by Ray Thompson earlier today that uh, about Tiger Woods, which is remarkable. And, you know, you should, you should go read it. And then they'll sort of paraphrase it a little bit on the air. And so like, that's not a huge investment in like the covering an event, really. Like we might, I, I was at the ESPN when we would send, not kidding, 80 people to the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, and, and it would be in Manhattan or it would be in San Francisco or like not cheap cities, or whatever. And that some of those like people, an astronomical amount of people to send. Oh, my, we, we used to throw like an ESPN party at the Super Bowl every year. I was at a party where, uh, where Kendrick Lamar played, that, you know, it was a huge ballroom. I mean, that's ESPN's putting on a thing. That's the only time I've ever seen Kendrick Lamar with another year. It was, uh, <laughs> that guy sing the blurred lines. What's his name? Uh, Robin Thick. Uh, Robin Thick. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, those kind of things, ESPN's trended a little bit away from those big splashy things, but part of being a media company is like making big splashes to sort of say like, Hey, we're here. We're sort of an important part of this. I mean, there's a lot of executives who go to sporting events who don't produce anything. They're there to sort of, of have relationships, have, you know, handshakes, have meals, networking, yes. whatever, or just to see, to be seen. And they want to be seen to, by other people in the industry to sort of know, hey, I'm an important person too. What's frustrating, I think, about some of the stuff where you start trimming the things out is, and it, we go back to the band analogy, is like, yeah, but it's the people who are, like, it's working out for the industry okay, but the people who are actually producing the content, they're the whole reason, like, you know, you're tuning into ESPN, and I guess in that, maybe not in that sense, ESPN, you're tuning in to see the golfers, but like, you're tuning in to see Stephen A, you're tuning in to see, to read a story of, right thompson's or whatever those are the people who are going to get squeezed by all this like and they're producing the sort of reason to 
kind of have a connection to the company. Well, you know what's tough is it, it, it all gets bucketed into two words, media and content. And it's not the same, right? I think what we're talking about is like journalism getting getting squeezed, like doing like real reporting, uncovering stuff and or doing real analysis. Like my first job out of college, I worked for this company, Giga, and it was like market industry research on like technology. And like when I started, like they did good work. It was like a, you know, basically like a blog, like TechCrunch. And then we had this like market research on the the back end. But what I found when that company failed on a Monday was that uh, <laughs> like three years later. No, that's just when they told you, Doug. No, no, they told they the whole knew, company on a Monday it. afternoon. What I found out is like they pitched it, you know, they raised venture capital money and pitched it like it was a, you know, a high growth business. And, you know, doing research, doing survey work, doing industry reports and, and stuff is not like, a, it's not scalable. Like somebody has to do the work. Someone has to do the survey. Right. And so that's where like that type of content is very different than like entertainment content that can be scalable. Like you look at, you know, the reason TikTok does so well is because they don't, they just get the users to make the content for them. You know what I mean? Like they don't, yeah. they don't pay a dime for it. So that's what, well, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. In TikTok's case, but I would say the other, there's other platform. Instagram does a good job. I think with when they outlaid, like, you know, they're taking care of creators now. Like if you want to go down there, yeah. whereas Twitter and we haven't even really touched on Twitter and everything that I think is very relevant, like relevant in this whole topic and what Elon's doing to not only limit, you know, tweet views and, and everything else like that, like the the options to to get this media out into the space. Well, yeah, because I mean, the, well, the social channels kind of nuked the, the the papers because they took away the distribution. And got you know, kind of got in front of the, uh, got in the middle there, which is which cost them dearly. But it, yeah, it's just I think that this the type of content I, I, we hear media and we hear the word content, and it's like no, you got to think about like in depth journalism is very different than first take, right? And I and KVV, I agree with what you said earlier about like at, at some point that's going to cause a problem though because the first take people might not have anything to talk about, uh, but that doesn't seem to matter to them. Or the things that they would talk about would be so inane that eventually the audience will catch on to like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, why would I care about this, this debate over and over again of like, you know, the Steph Curry or LeBron, like, but I guess you know. ESPN's betting that because they have the broadcast rights that they, that, you know, there's a new story every day from the NBA playoffs or from, you know, baseball or like that's, that's going to drive the, you know, news of the day because they have the access to the, you know, the live action basically. Which, listen, I, you know, could argue that's, that's decent. I mean, is it a little soulless? Yes, it is. And it sucks. But man, I, I just, I wish somebody could figure out, like not everybody can work for the New York Times or a place like that's doing, you know, Wall Street Journal that's doing journalism, but it doesn't seem to be a very uh, easy business to, to get up and running. Let me put it that way. For sure. And, you know, that's the, the biggest problem is, is like the, it's, it's fine for the people who've made it to say like, well, journalism is doing great. Like I'm making a good living and I'm fine. And like, you know, like, yeah, but if the whole, but imagine if you just eliminated the whole minor leagues of like baseball or, or basketball, or whatever, basically like, all right, there is no more AAU programs. There is no more high school basketball. It's just, everybody can just figure it out on the playground themselves. The basketball would be pretty shitty in, in the long run. And the same is true of, you know, football and, and baseball. Like that, the same is true of journalism. Like if you just keep eliminating the bottom rungs and being like, ah, we'll figure it out. Like 
I don't know. I mean, it, what it turns I'm, into is like this, uh, the old boys club of, oh, well, I know this person, you know, my cousin's, you know, second kids going to journalism school and we'll pull them up, give them an internship. You know, we don't got to pay them either, you know, not paying them anything or we're going to give the kid the chance and it doesn't matter. They're going to bounce around this company and, and they're still going to stay there. Yep. And you know, that's when I worked at the Baltimore sun in 2000, you know, the, a lot of the editors who were a couple of them had never even been to college. There were people who had been in the mailroom and the, or the working, throwing newspapers off of trucks and worked their way up to be on the answering phones on the desk and like learned the city from the ground up. And they were the smartest damn people in the whole newsroom about, you know, figuring out all right, who to call, who's the sort of you know, characters in this neighborhood who are important. I mean, a lot of the stuff in the wire is like kind of a hint, a wink at that. It was like, you keep eliminating, you know, the actual knowledge of media places. And then you're just sort of left with like kids who are like out of college and their life experiences are drastically different and that affects your community. Neil, you got any big media questions left? Because I want to f- like shift this conversation a little bit and talk about the this world that we live in in golf media. Yeah, oh, please take it take it that direction. Yeah, what is the current status of like golf media? That's a good question. I think that because um, it seems, and I'll, I'll 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 walk this dog a little bit for yeah. you. It feels like there's not a lot of like investigative reporting going on. It feels like that they're, uh, the, the reporting that does happen is literally, you know, again, these, these pass through statements or maybe a comment that, that somebody received via agent and everything feels very, very placed for a reason. And I'm not even like really talking about like PJ tour live nowadays. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about like in general, I I would say the guy, why is golf media in it and, I know I'm not the only one saying this. Why is it relatively like soft? I think a lot of it is probably because it's access dependent in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of it is, you know, that there's a lot of sponsorship money that is directly sort of tied into the financial viability of various places. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've always tried to kind of tell people when they ask me about our thing is like, we're, we're upfront about, who we are and who we're sponsored by. And there's no, like, there's no attempt to hide it or attempt to sort of, you can judge us, you know, based on whatever you want. Uh, and uh, you know, I do think that it would be great if there was more, uh, hard questions that were being asked of, you know, whether it's, I mean, I I always try to kind of ask one or two hard questions when we get once a year, when we get Jay Monahan or something, you know, or, or Mike Juan, something that's going to, basically make them feel like they're a little bit accountable, but you know, I could probably do a better job too of, of doing that stuff. I mean, it, and this is not, this is not a personal shot at you. I'm, no. I'm saying like as an all, and nor do I want you to put you in a position where you're insulting, obviously the people that you see at these events that you travel to and everything else, else like that. Like, I don't want your, your, you know, your media dining food being poisoned by something. (laughs) A lot of it is hard. I mean, there's people with way, way harder golf media jobs than I have because they're, they have to write stuff that's, you know, I don't want to say like click driven, but they have to write quickly and they have to write succinctly and they have to churn out three, four stories a day. And that's part of their job because they're trying to sort of keep their head above water and can drive enough traffic to sort of keep the lights on at their various places. Uh, And that's a hard 
sort of thing to do when you have to write three stories in a single day from a major are you really sinking into any of them some people can do it some people do great work still but i just don't know how like your that hamster wheel doesn't become sort of you know unsustainable and you know that's uh, there used to be i think more substance in golf media um there used to be less diversity hopefully there's more diversity now in terms of like even just terms of thought and ages uh people used to hold on to golf media jobs forever you know there was guys who would be 60 70 years old who'd been doing it for 50 years and there's less of that now there's a good young crop of you know journalists who and there's independent outlets that are hiring those people you know whether it's you know the fried egg or you know various other sort of you know there's there's good ones at golf.com and golf digest and i hope that those people sort of feel like this is a sustainable future for them but you know it's just a hard grind of a of a business to be going to to really cover a beat well it's like you're going to a different city every other week and you're you know you might get one out of every three weeks off and you're you piss off a big player and you know that person cuts you out or that agency cuts you out and that's becomes way more complicated and so that's maybe why some of the questions are you know, not as hard hitting. There's no league in between. Basically, like if I pissed off an NFL player, uh, there would be times when the NFL couldn't make that person talk to me, but they wouldn't like cut off access to that person. You right. Know, would, your your uh, credentials would yeah. not be removed from the Super Bowl or right. whatever. You, Kevin, you can't go in the locker room today. Like right. Joe Flacco doesn't like you or whatever. And I think that there's there is more of that in golf media where it's like, hey, you know, so and so don't want doesn't want to talk to you. He's not gonna talk to anybody unless you're you're not here. He's not, don't even bother coming up to him in a practice round. Cause he'll, he'll cut you off entirely. Or he'll basically say, you know, tell the PJ to take away my ropes credential or tell live to take away your ropes credential or whatever. And so, you know, I'd live the first live event I ever went to in London was, was the only event I ever went to. I thought, okay, well, like, you know what, this let's, let's talk to these guys about how they feel. Let's, you know, they were, they were way more controlling in their access to all media, not just like, mainstream media that they thought was going to be sort of favorable to them they wouldn't let you at all go anywhere wouldn't couldn't walk the course couldn't go to the driving range couldn't talk to the gut players except for the few players that they brought to the you know press conference afterwards like i think live where they might have kind of dropped the ball is they, they had an opportunity to basically be like wide open to sort of the that's media. what i was thinking like, too. you know what like hey I, we I are what I we are like you can think what you think but like we're an open book like come in here and like and they immediately were like so controlling and so sort of autocratic in that way of like, do not, if you write anything negative, like we're going to sort of, you know, send our little, you know, bots after you and all that stuff. Like, for sure. I, I completely agree with that take. I think the, the easiest thing and most beneficial thing that they could have done is, you know, the, the players are the ones who had to make the hard decision there. And they obviously came to, to grasp with it and made that decision that's based off of, whatever they think the benefit of it was for them, they're already past the hardest part of the whole of this. Let them, let them describe it. I mean, I think I go back to, you know, Harold's comments. I, I go back to DJ's comments and I like, why didn't we hear all of them? Why, why haven't all of them, uh, you know, put their stories out there and continue to talk and talk about the differences of events and everything. And, and so it's not watered down by just, Oh, live music and vibes and, you know, a shotgun start. There's so many benefits that they potentially could be talking about over there that they kind of, you know, they've shot themselves in the foot quite a bit. But 
uh, on the flip side of that, the PGA Tour and what you're you're talking about earlier about like removing you know inside the ropes or or potentially like all the way up to your credentials, like that's very real. And I think you know we we talk about all the time on the main pod, and we're not talking about golf here. Okay, this is about business. This is the business side of it. But the fact that it is a player run, and I say player run, but ultimately, like these agents have immense power. Like you can literally be blacklisted from being anywhere where near someone. Yes, you can. And there's a few that we don't get along with. I do want to say something though, because I've seen a lot of people. You know, I don't want to say trolls, but people. There's a, ma- a massive conspiracy theory. Like, so we have we have an agent, and he works for Excel. That's Tiger's agent. Mr. Steiny, right, runs that shop with with his close friend Casey Close, and uh, uh, I can't remember who the NBA guy NBA guy is, but like people act like they tell us what to say, <laughs> and it's like, no, man, we we pay yeah. them like to help like collect payment from sponsors. Like it's not like there's this cabal that's saying you can't, you know make fun of Justin Rose, who's also repped by Excel, right? And or you so, can't talk about fucking Tiger Woods and any of the shit that he gets in, positive or negative. I would love to point you to a trap draw where we did a oral history of Tiger's career, both the good and the bad. I mean, I think there's just like, I, I laugh that uh, I've gotten to the point now with NLU that like we're wrapped up in conspiracy theories that like we're either paid by the PGA Tour or that we're, or that Excel is paying us to protect protect their players. Talking points coming coming down from yeah. Steiny, who's also running the PGA Tour behind the scenes with Jimmy Dunn. It's like, what are we doing, guys? What are, what are you talking about? You know, like we've actually there's been like times where we've said, you know, certain threads where our agent were like, no, you can't, you're not in this Slack thread. You know what I mean? Like we're there's a and, and some of it is just like, yeah, you got to kind of trust us that I'm telling you the truth. I am, but it's like. It comes down to just like, do you, people talk about journalistic integrity. I, I don't consider myself a journalist, uh, but I, I do consider myself a, a person of integrity. And it's like, you kind of know, like, am I being scummy or am I not? Am I, I'm not carrying anybody's water. I don't want to, that's not what I want to do with my life. I don't care how much money somebody's going to give me. And like, honestly, there's like no money in that. Like, no, no nobody's going to pay you that much to, uh, you know, the funniest thing is we've all gotten outreach from this, like live golf uh i don't know aggregator company they're working on behalf of live and they're offering to pay us 50 bucks to post like pro live stuff i guess they don't listen to our podcast but like i i don't have any pga you know people saying like hey can you can you feature this can you paint us in a good light like do we have contacts with the pga tour yeah do they like give us information sometimes yes but like we're gonna say whatever the fuck we want with the information right and i would say the same thing with titleist like yo, sometimes we disagree on the ball and the distance stuff. And like, you can't tell us what to say. And like, can we make fun of Titleist players? I would point you to everything that Tron Carter has said about Scotty Scheffler for the past nine months. Like, I don't think that we are using kid gloves with uh, with anybody. Like, I'm, I'm a massive Rory fan. I feel like I get on Rory when he, when he chokes, man. And it, it pains me because I root for him. So it, it is a balance between like, yes, I'm a fan. And yes, I want to have an opinion and I want to be honest about my opinion. I'm biased. I'm rooting for Rory. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I can't criticize well, him. Well, easy, easy. And so I get a little frustrated. Yeah, with that I stuff. would just say the one thing that I would, uh, you know, Rory is a co host on this podcast. So just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, be, be. But it's like, I don't think any of us like are going to, 
you know, I, I think Roy's a decent human being. Like, and there's probably some people that I'm, I'm a little bit more, a uh, little harsher with, right? Because it's like, yo, I don't think that guy, I don't, I don't like him. Like, and I, I will say that, right? Like, I don't think he's, you know, and so, yeah, I guess maybe I'm, I'm not as hard on Rory because, because I like him. That's fair. That's a fair criticism, but I'm not, you know, I'm not in cahoots with his agent about getting his message out, right? That that's where it's like, man, th- like we have really jumped to like a new dimension with this stuff. And I'm like, I, I just am impressed with like, I, I'm, I'm honestly kind of like, I laugh. I'm like, fuck yeah, man. People think I'm part of a conspiracy. This is like a, it's almost like I've achieved a life goal. Like I've unlocked a, a new level. It's sick. Imagine like listening to anything that Tron or Randy had ever said and then thinking that their opinions were up for sale. Like, <laughs> I know. Just, I mean, look, I, I, I get I just that actually con- like, we don't like, I, I'm critical of live because I, I mean it. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't really like, and if they, if they win, whatever that means, like if, if, at the end of this year they merge or not merge but they they all come together and unify the game of golf and it turns out the pif is in charge i'll still cover golf you know it's it's not like there was a pot of gold that i'm going to lose out on if that happens i'm i'm kind of i'm just watching the boxing match man and i'm and i'm kind of just yeah i'm rooting for one of the boxers because of like i've been following it for a long time and i just think they're kind of the lesser of two evils at this point well the other thing too is that like all this information and and I see people talking about it all the time, like how far off we are. Like we have legitimate sources, we have legitimate, you know, methods and we have legitimate means of collecting this information and analyzing it and trying to get to the bottom of it and having the most like coherent thoughts possible. And we're wrong sometimes, like, you know, and that's, that's okay. And also but things change over the course A hundred percent. Listen, I didn't, I did not see the strategic alliance coming. I'm sorry. You know, I di- didn't, didn't know that was going to happen. I don't think anybody. For sure. Did. But there, there is a reason that like, you know, we're not paid by the PGA tour. We're not paid by the PGA tour to fucking go cover events. We're not paid by the LPGA tour and people can you know, say whatever, you know, people are beating us up for the, the women's coverage, which we're going to stand by and continue to do. We're not paid by the USGA, even though there is plenty of USGA money that you can go out there and get to do. They, they've asked hundred percent. And that's and we a hundred, a hundred percent for, for to do ads for the freaking yeah, gin, gin or like, victory, and club, the victory club, whatever. And like what those people are doing, Cody, is they're telling on themselves. They're basically saying like, I think this is beneath me. We don't think that like the LPGA is beneath us. We think it's fucking great. And that's why we want to, that's why we want to cover it. Like I, I don't do it because I have a daughter. I do it because I actually like golf in all of its forms. And that's why, like, I think it's important to cover that stuff. And I guess to bring this back to like the topic at hand, what, what is tough for me is that with the, with the hollowing out of like big J journalism, like I don't, I don't, like I said earlier, I don't consider myself a journalist, but now people are coming to us for like that kind of stuff. And I almost feel like unqualified to give it to them. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's like, I I'm trying, like, I think that you can be, not be a journalist and provide people good information. You can inform people and entertain them, which is our mission. But like, I wish that I, I don't want that burden to fall on us for people to be like, you got no, now no one's left. So you guys have to do the, you know, like the investigative work. Like that's, that's a, a tough one you know what i'm saying like i'd rather like support somebody else doing that work that's a professional at it that we can then analyze what they did and you know 
it, it informs our opinion because we are opinion based. Like that's, that's kind of the, you know, core of what NLE, that's how we, we came up in this, you know, media landscape. But it seems like with well, all I'd this, say we we do. Well, you know, I mean, Kevin, uh, it's part of the reason he's a legitimate journalist here. He, he has, and and that's part of the reason we've brought you know you on KVV. But I'm just, it's just tough. Like when there's not, uh, when that gets hollowed out, and it all comes down to us, then then you, you know, because inherently, yes, because we have relationships and we're friends with some of the players and we like them and. I guess you could argue because we're repped by the same agency as some of the players. Like, is that a conflict of interest in theory? Yes, it could be. But I, I like have thought deeply about that. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think it's been an issue. I really don't like, I have never, not one time has our agent or any need to say this just never happened period. Like, and so it's just like, when I, these crazy claims come out, I'm like, God, man, like, you know, yeah, connect the dots, man. It's like, fuck, dude. You know really? what? Randy sent me something that was I thought was really smart at the the uh, U.S. Open, the Women's U.S. Open we were just at. And he was like, just step back sometimes and realize how little power any of those people exist without Twitter. Like, that, it's all with like a Twitter conversation. That Their whole like ecosystem is like, if you, if you start to realize that like only 7% of the people in the United States like log into Twitter – and how many people of those 7% like even follow golf? Like what a tiny percentage all of that like trolling really is. And, you know, it's been, I was thinking about it the last few days of like responding to some of this nonsense while in the moment, like it's, it's like it, the, the dunks might feel good in the moment. It's like the NBA all-star game, but they're sort of hollow and like pointless, right? In the long run, they don't mean anything. And so, you know, Neil, you're just telling me recently, like just, do your best to avoid that because it's there's so much irrelevance in it. It's just people trying to get a rise out of you who are not. They're the ones who are actually like being shills for something. Anybody who's accusing us of being paid by the PGA Tour is almost always literally getting paid or giving massive amounts of access you know. by the other side. So it's like, you know what? If you're a consumer, consume it all. Decide who you trust and then stick with those people or consume all of it and then weigh who you want. I, I always, when people, people are like, I'm not going to listen to you guys anymore because I don't trust you on the live stuff. Okay, man. Goodbye. Like, I don't give a shit. Doesn't make any difference in my life. Yeah. I, know? Oh, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I wish that wasn't the case, man, but I, I, I cause I'm making a I'm bet sorry. in the long run that more people are going to be trustworthy in what we're doing. And I think that bet's paying off, but I, I think it's, I mean, and that's, and I, I, what I value is like, we are independent, like financially, like it is like, we don't have any, you know, people act like, you know, Excel has invested in it. No. Yeah. It, it's nuts. I don't know. Kev, well, that, I appreciate it. went uh, rambling a little bit and I'm sorry if I, you know, got us way off into the conspiracy. No, land, it's but. good. I appreciate it. It's, it's the world of sports media right now. It's, it's crazy. I hope it shakes out. I hope you see more local reporting done. I hope you see more reporting at every single level. It's, it's just a wild, wild, wild time. Um, of course, for the listeners who are still with us, if you have feedback, you want to hear more, you got questions for Kevin, that Trap Draw listener line is always open at 833-330-8725. We'd love to hear whatever takes you got. Once again, 833-330-8725. Uh, that number is also the number that you could dial to uh, to get whatever the Strap Boys were selling uh in their Amansky tribute video at the at the start of strapped episode three that you can check out now on our youtube channel i appreciate it kevin thank you Always for joining bad. us we'll see you next time thanks bud cheers